What if you say it may be used against you? No. Maybe used for training purposes. Uh training purposes. Oh, hi. It's Calvin with the Twin Geek Cast. Uh, this week presented a lot of special technical challenges, so we've edited it the best we could, and we hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Uh, enjoy your time with your family, and uh, take a break. Welcome back. Another week of uh, Twin Geek Casts. We're back. Uh, you know, now that we're doing video, we should really wear Western hats, like cowboy hats for these parts. It's not going to matter to people listening, but I think it would feel more authentic to us. It's like when I pretended to need glasses for... (laughs) (laughs) Which episode was that again? Uh, What was that? Our safety last episode. Right, right. Because we were doing the Harold Lloyd bit, and I'm always wearing glasses. So we should wear hats and and accoutrements relevant to whatever our film is. I I agree. Let me get my poncho. That would be a lot of fun for these. I'm sure you have. You've got to have a Clint Eastwood outfit lying around for, like, Halloweens and stuff, right? I should have. Um, I have a blanket that looks like his poncho, but no poncho. Just cut a hole in it and throw it over your shoulders. <laughs> That's really what a poncho is, just a blanket with a hole in it, right? Basically, yeah. It's like some kind of rug or or something. I don't know. At least the one he wears looks like a rug. Well, I also... It's hard to decide if you really want that or the big Lebowski kind of poncho. Like, I was somewhere I was, in between. I was just gonna those. say that. I was just gonna say, like, what if we had like really any any film lover should have two rugs in their house, and one should be the design of the Eastwood poncho, and of course the others is the dude's rug. It really tied the room together. Right. So anyway, uh, I guess to start off, we have some sad news this week. Uh, today. As we're recording this, we got news that uh, Carl Reiner, legendary comic director and all-around funny man, uh, died today at 98. Um, Extremely prolific, and he left behind a a huge, huge swath of comedy that I barely even approached. Um, Of course, course, famously, one of the creators of Dick Van Dyke Show and um, all-around a huge comedy legend, a great friend of Mel Brooks. A uh, fantastic mm-hmm. uh, anti-Donald Trump tweeter. <laughs> he he was so active for for even just as recently as like he, he sent out another tweet yesterday. He was a very prolific tweeter, shockingly, yeah. uh, and you know he was someone I I followed a lot and enjoyed. Um, and and I was sad to see that he did not get to outlive Donald Trump's horrendous <laughs> regime because nothing. I think he wanted nothing more than to see that man put in bars as we all do. But, yes, he, he should be remembered, of course, for his great contributions to comedy. I think a lot of people nowadays may not remember him as much as, like, like the, the legacy of his work. It, it's older. Yeah, the legacy of his work hasn't uh, quite remained as pro- prolific as, uh, say, like Mel Brooks, you know, his mm-hmm. other big contemporary. But he did lots of fabulous work with uh, Steve Martin in particular, and who really helped launch his career with stuff like... The Jerk and The Man with Two Brains, and a uh, particular favorite of mine is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is which is a fantastic uh, old-school noir parody that uses actual footage from a lot of uh, major noirs like Double Indemnity and The Big Sleep, and incorporates and has like uh, Steve Martin calling up Bogart for advice and stuff on cases and all that. It's very fun and clever. Yeah, so I've only... 
I haven't seen that much of his work. I've seen Fatal Instinct recently, which uh, about the same as Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction for me, but a lot funnier. Mm-hmm. Uh another good uh parody film it's again uh, we kind of mentioned him with brooks there as well but his his work is a little different and uh interesting in its own right and uh cr- like i said almost kind of criminally overlooked today by a lot of uh younger audiences i think maybe this will be a call to kind of re-examine it and see where he stands a little bit better um that's that seems to often be the case but really it's it's a shame that he wasn't more recognized uh now he certainly was recognized in his time but you know mm-hmm. people like brooks's work or like the zucker brothers with the airplane and such have uh stood out more in in the cultural zeitgeist than some of uh reiner's work and i think nowadays he's probably remembered more for his role of uh sal in uh the oceans films mm-hmm. which he does wonderfully as well and, yeah, and that's good. always kind of an image i'm gonna have as for him as well as his his recent social media persona, which, which has been <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Uh, that's the role of the lifetime, uh, uh, Reiner mm-hmm. on Twitter. Uh, I know he's very well known for Where's Papa and um, what else would you say? The Jerk, uh, more stuff I haven't seen. Yeah, the, the if you haven't seen The Jerk, people really need to see The Jerk because it is a comedy staple of the 70s and like a huge benchmark in Steve Martin's career and, and very hilarious uh, you know, some people think it's one of the best comedies ever, certainly, and mm-hmm. it, I mean, it lives up to that in many ways. Um, I do think he will be reevaluated a little bit, and, um, I don't know, I, I feel like there aren't a lot of, like, stone-cold classics there, but there's a, a huge career of comedy left behind. Definitely check some out. I, th- I think you'll be surprised by many of the gems that are hidden and a little forgotten in there. But he, as well as you know his, his other contemporaries, they've they've lived incredibly long lives. You know, ninety eight is, is a huge accomplishment, and alongside the likes of you know his contemporaries like Mel Brooks and Dick Van Dyke, who are still around and kicking and you know <laughs> mucking it up. Yeah, it was sweet to see him him leave a thing on Twitter a couple of days ago saying how his life was complete because he had created with his wife and uh you you realize the later life gets that that's what's important <laughs> and, and, and he lived he lived long enough to celebrate mel brooks's most recent birthday that was just a couple yeah. days ago and he went over and hung out with him there were some pictures of them and they were wearing did you yeah, see that picture those. floating around they were wearing the yeah. black lives matters t-shirts to go out with a statement like that shows just how <laughs> in touch he he always was even if he wasn't at the center of the zeitgeist any longer it's a good reminder that we all don't have to become conservative racists in a few years. So, yeah, that's important. It, yeah, it, it it demonstrates that it's not age that makes you that way. It's it's intolerance. Right. It's empathy, intolerance, and a, a good example. Anyone could want to be more like Carl Reiner. It would be better off. Mm-hmm. We need we need more of them in the world. Sad day, mm-hmm. but you know now we'll all go back and watch some of his uh, hilarious works. Yeah, I'm excited to see the jerk, especially. I know that one's been on the back burner for too long. So, watch, yeah, the jerk, and and like I said, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is a kind of a personal favorite because it it appeals to me. It's it's funny seeing Steve Martin on the phone with with Bogart and stuff, and then it kind of <laughs> evolves into a, a bizarre Nazi plot towards the end with with Reiner actually in the film playing a part. So if that doesn't interest you, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> you know what does interest me? Huh? The floor is lava. Oh, you're going to make me talk about this? I was, I was really hoping we'd avoid it. 
I didn't mean uh, I didn't mean to do this. Me to this show. I don't watch right. new. Th- I, I did it on accident. Okay, I'm sorry that I I fell for the Netflix trap where I opened the app and I saw a thing and I'm like, ooh, what's this thing that Netflix is promoting? And then I clicked on it and I told you guys all about it. And then everybody started watching it and was like, hey, this is actually really mediocre. I'm like, yes, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, um, that's your influence is that uh, we all began watching Flores Lava. Uh, I'd say your main influence on the website. <laughs> We're all hooked on the Flores Lava uh an obstacle game show which really does call out to you on netflix like the lava red in the background was already it's, calling for me but it had a really great design like like i gotta say it was it was ingenious from like a marketing standpoint that you took this known concept this like childhood game that we're all familiar with and you turned it into something like that looks appealing that we would all want to participate in because that's the, the hook of game shows like this where it's like it's an obstacle course thing that you feel like you could traverse and do and then you make it visually appealing as well and that's that's really what the show had going for it and then when you actually watch it you just realize how kind of dumb and repetitive and unspecial it is in so many ways it was is very much like a smart marketing gimmick with not enough creative push in the actual like game show elements to keep it i was feeling it until until about five episodes in and the next five episodes they repeat the same courses (laughs) With one small gimmick, and the small gimmick is always one thing that goes against the players, but it never ended up being uh, an actual matter. Like, it never countered in in a way that factored into their play. So, uh, that just just repetitive. Um, the you'll first have to tell me. Fun. Uh, you'll have to tell me how m- more about the show, because I literally only watched the first episode, and I made the judgment <laughs> based it. off of that. I said, yeah, that's it. I was like, oh, okay, I got everything I needed out of this. I saw what I, I wanted. And it's well, repetitive. I... It's repetitive just within the first episode because you have three teams traversing the exact same course, and it's clear that they are instructed on how to navigate the course because there's like yeah. three very specific things you have to do to make the obstacles traversable, and like they yeah. have to tell you about that beforehand. There's no way that they just like naturally come across the idea that you need to stick the staff in the hole because you probably wouldn't even notice the hole you know because right. it's it's below you and you're probably more concerned of how am i going to make that jump to get to the end one one thing i notice about the show is that editing specifically is that they it goes in like three minute increments there's like a blank few minutes where you don't see anything where i'm sure the guy could be like talking over the loudspeaker telling him okay maybe there's a hole here we got to get the show moving in some way um, yeah well but, that- I think that's the biggest detriment of the show is that the host is a very boring person. And that's that's really very unfortunate because part of the incentive for the players to win is so that they can meet the guy who is a person. He ends up taking a selfie with like the final winners. Not very interesting. What what kind of incentive is that for the show? Like, (laughs) I don't even care who this person is. He's not like a big name celebrity of any kind. You didn't get like Tom Hanks to host your show. There's no... There's no reason someone would want to meet this person, I don't think. No. I don't so this... think... I, would want... I wouldn't want to meet him. I'd rather fall in the lava myself. Well, it's a... And it's a big selling point. Like, they, they emphasize throughout it. It's like, <laughs> and the winners get to meet me at the end. It's like, uh, okay, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> he has, it's he kind has of... one joke in the show that you run through the course for $10,000 and you get a $29 lava lamp at the end. That's yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like, the trophy is, like, it's just literally a lava lamp. There's, like, no decor to it or anything. It's just, like, a, a literal lava lamp. I like I like the idea 
of a lava lamp kind of being the item, but but make it look more like a trophy. You know, it's just like you yeah, literally it, picked it up. It looks sad. Yeah, uh, and again, that's that's kind of bizarre because that's like the one thing the show has going for for it is that it has really great uh, design. Like the rooms are very cool looking. They they somehow made the water look like like lava. Like it looks like that with the yeah, very orange is. coloring. Yeah, it has like yellow orange foam like rising out, and they have it. Uh, they have a lot of gimmicks later on where it's spouting out. Um, uh, some of the things that help you in earlier episodes end up being traps. <laughs> Uh, like was... later on, the rope that you would pull actually sparks lava all over the items, so now they're wet. Um, mm. that, that's the thing. I was really hoping at one point that the lava that occasionally like sp- explodes from the water, it would spook someone yeah. and they would fall in. Because that's really what There's... I want from the game shows. Like You don't want to see people win. You want to see them fall on no. their faces. <laughs> There's a lot of that, and they do a good job of doing replays of that. There's a lot of crotch shots with the lava, which is fun. At least mm-hmm. four of them that I counted. Um, <laughs> I like the I like the team gimmicks. I like when it's uh, my favorite one was military bros and um, what was it? They were like retail cashiers, and uh, the retail cashiers ended up winning uh, because they had better teamwork and chemistry. So I, the, I found that really amusing. The first episode had three really buff triplets, and that was humorous because <laughs> yeah. I kept losing track of who was who because they're yeah, very there's a lot like, of that. We just recently talked on Dead Ringers about how easy it is to tell twins apart, but I'm going to go ahead and contradict myself because these guys looked exactly the same. Are these the guys that wore the American flag kind of? Yeah, they had they had American flag shirts on yeah. in the beginning, and they ended up losing really badly, which I thought was funny because they seemed way more uh, physically fit than like the mother-daughter-son team that actually won that first episode. I think the show's good at that. It it's obviously edited to make you think one thing and it always does the other thing, which could also be predictable after a few, but uh, I like the, I like the space layout, which I guess you might not have got to yet. Yeah. I would have liked to see more of the rooms. The problem really was, and I could feel that the show was going to be repetitive just from the first episode, because like I said, there's, it's a very clearly mapped layout and they're given the instructions of how to, you know, cross the course beforehand. There's, I'm not sure if they are. Oh, it, it seems like they are based on that episode, but regardless, there's, like, one, like, clear way to get there. Like, it didn't seem to me that there yeah. was, there was a lot of creative control on the player's part there's, to traverse there's usually, the course. As far as I can tell, there's always at least three outcomes. Um, I rarely saw someone take, like, the most tricky outcome, but there was always a, a third option that was possible. The, the first episode, each team there's three and it was three teams and each of them took the exact same paths you had one person <laughs> who went to the left side to get to the, they they climbed on the little lip to get to the rope so that they could drop the thing and then you had the other two people use the giant painting as a bridge and like everyone just instinctively grabbed the painting there and that and this is the thing i was like well that's the first thing everyone does <laughs> when uh when it came back to that room and it repeated someone the the painting fell in right away <laughs> so nah. that became a bigger <laughs> obstacle um there, there was always, there's always a one person that has to go out around the sideway, and there's a thing they have to do to make the obstacle easier for their friends. So uh, every mm-hmm. episode is the same thing. Someone trying to do that, or they ignore it and they try longer jumps. But uh, those are the two options, and that's what I th- happens. 
I think that would be fine if that were more on it, like, every... Like, if you only did that in... Where you had to go to the room one more time and do it in two episodes. Yeah. But the fact that it's three people, and it's the exact same method, three times in a 30-minute time span, it just... It was already repetitive. And I was like, I don't know if I could do this for, like, a whole season of shows. Uh, and, and you it, have like, to kind of... You kind of have to care about it after it happens. You kind of have to keep track of these people got this many people through, and now they're mm -hmm. competing indirectly against another group, which is where it falls flat for me because I don't feel like the direct competition. I'd rather uh, six of them were thrown on all at once and whoever gets to the finish with the most people wins. Oh, uh, you know what? Each other in and shit. You're right. That's that's the solution there. Why even have teams? Yeah. Just make it a free-for-all yeah. and, and anyone can get there and you could push people. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be so much fun. That's two what... entrances, and then they need... meet in the middle. Need more chaos. Yeah, oh, like that'd be cool as well. Like if you had, you know what? Let's pitch our own game show. We'll make it more like a mountain climb to the top or something. Yeah. Um, but but the biggest thing so... is that no matter how bad a game show and, and the actual mechanics can be, if you had a good host that could really save everything, who could be very it funny would. and give yeah. great commentary. But this guy, he just sucks. <laughs> There's nothing interesting um, about I... him. <laughs> I think about shows like there's a golfing show on ABC that's like mini golf. And the only good thing about it is the host. They they make a lot of sexual innuendos about the contestants. And uh, they say funny things about holes every episode. Uh, mm -hmm. The last one I watched, they're talking about holes in Uranus. And that was the theme of the episode. So you know that's a quality show. That's what I want. <laughs> that's, that's really what, you, what I what enjoy. What do you feel about game shows? Uh, I think we I have the same like uh, beginning with game shows. Yeah, because uh, we talked about it briefly when this came up, is that uh, we, we were part of the generation that grew up on game shows with stuff on Nick Gass. Like you had, uh, you know, the, the stuff, the Mark Summers hosted stuff and Legends of the Hidden yeah. Temple. I think I think Legends of the Hidden Temple in particular resonated with all of us because there was a particular uh, allure of the setting and the uh, adventurous aspect of it that, well, that really the held theme up. Was, the theme was really cool and it was like peak... Uh, Indiana Jones is a part of the culture uh -huh. and all the steam like coming out of the temple and these areas to explore like it was the biggest play place if you were a kid and you just wanted to like yeah. climb through this thing and explore it yourself well, it, was, it was just a really good formula as well even though it was like a lot of the same and they had variety in the games because it was a process of getting to the actual temple run the temple run was the selling point but you had each each obstacle bit was interesting along the way, and they had and they swapped it each episode to keep it fresh. Um, yeah, and um, I uh, also think about like a Nick Arcade was one of my favorites. Like these video games that didn't even even practically work. It was like sub connect stuff, so you're just like jumping up and down. That's the game. Yeah. But the other thing, cool thing I thought about Legend of the Hidden Temple was the the history aspect that was woven in because they did have that oh, yeah. step steps of knowledge aspect, and you actually learned some stuff. And so that was one of the cool things about <laughs> the show. I, I actually went back, I want to say five years ago now, and rewatched the show on YouTube, uh, and I still like just greatly enjoyed episodes, it beyond or... just a nostalgic sake. You watched all of it, or just like a few of them. <laughs> most of it most of it's preserved on uh, and okay. youtube like there's no physical cool. release of it like people have just uploaded episodes and i watched like a ton of them and, and i still greatly enjoyed it but other game shows i've enjoyed are course or stuff like uh ninja warrior you see in the mini spinoffs there and yeah. uh the, the wipeout shows those were always fun that, that gave me the satisfaction of watching people crash and dive well netflix also has the beastmaster so i feel like this is a logical expansion to kind of what they were already doing there and i think it's just like their dating shows they have a 
they have a lot more breadth they could cover with a few more gimmicks. Like, uh, give me two more gimmicks on This Is Lava, and I think I'll be into it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, they've got a great idea there, I think. And again, the design aspect, whoever the, the artistic team is behind the show is great, deserves a good pat on the back. But, uh, you know, they, they need to rearrange some things if they want to be successful. Also, the naming of the show is confusing because it's it's actually just called floor is lava and not the yeah. floor is lava and i don't know why oh, really? but sometimes yeah that's how it's labeled and they even like the the host at the end of it you know still addressed it as you know on next time not on floor. floor is lava oh, okay. and I'm like, it's 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 weird to say it that way and drop the... maybe they couldn't get the they couldn't get the copyright because some kid is in his basement right now uh with the trademark it's did someone trademark the term the floor is lava because that's pretty ingenious that they did they had to have um that, that's what everyone does as a kid so i see why my daughter is attracted to it because she's never even seen an obstacle course so for her to see an aesthetic obstacle course this is her first one it makes sense man you know what can someone call up nickelodeon and tell them to launch a streaming service with all their old 90s stuff again <laughs> i would right. i would totally be all over that whatever your price is i don't care 15 20 bucks a month i'll pay for it to relive all of that yeah, I mean, there's a place for that, and I uh, I feel like Netflix is probably the place. So I'd also like to see it all on there. Yeah, just we can't let those those great gemstones, those uh, archival aspects of our childhood, disappear into the ethos. I need that still. Yeah. I need to see my Nick Gas shows and stuff, and all the great game shows, the Double Dares and such. That was that was a real boom, and uh, it it'll be a sincere tragedy if we lose those. I just want to see someone get slimed, really. I don't really care about the, the rest of it. Well, that, w that was totally the appeal of the show. There's a lot of... Uh, I, w I would say there's definitely a lot of Japanese game show influence on those Nickelodeon game shows. And, like, because he yeah. always had the... He had those obstacle courses where you had to crawl through, like, pits of marshmallow fluff or whatever it was and all yeah. sorts of stuff. And, of course, the sliming, the trademark green slime of Nickelodeon. And, like, the pits of killer bird-eater tarantulas. Yeah. Well, I guess... Watching one episode of Floor's Lava was, was worth it to incite this conversation, this nostalgic, you know, trip down well, memory lane. I think I've enjoyed the conversation more than the show, so I'll, exactly. I'll call that good. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sorry that my uh, watching of a single episode inspired you to go down and watch five times as many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean I go. didn't mean that. I didn't mean to start a, a fever within our little site here. Um. Other than that, we have a, another South Korean director making a, a great release. Uh, I feel like it's been a positive year for the culture. And we have Bo Rakim with The House of Hummingbird. Uh, just like that show, I'd like The House of Hummingbird, please. I don't like <laughs> a House of Hummingbird. I feel like that's half a title. Yeah, but I'm sure that has to do with translation uh, sure. more so in its cultural thing. They don't have any excuse for Flores Lava, I don't think. This Maybe one they have out. The hummingbird would work a little better for me, but what do I know? Yeah, but yeah, tell me about the the movie itself. If you're not too uh, hung up on titles. Yeah, it's about like a '90s kid who uh, is living in angst and. Uh, that just sounds like, like a '90s kid. Yeah, that, that, that's that's too much. You could just say a '90s kid, and I already got angst. Yeah, uh, '90s kid. That's the movie, um, uh -huh. and. Well, it does have a South Korean background, so it's just a little bit different than our own, but about the same. And she always feels like she's a delinquent. Uh, her teacher runs things in class to find out who the delinquent is, and all answers point to her. So uh, a lot of family issues there, but 
Uh, it's very slow. It's very slow cinema, and it really sticks with the characters and believes in them. So uh, a lot of merits to it. But uh, if you're very patient and want to kind of uh, exist in that teenage melancholy that doesn't have any of the usual tropes of the coming of age, uh, which really has no motivation at all. It's just a more slice of life, like a, uh, like a still life painting. It uh, feels still and you get to exist with all the people in it and it feels good. I like it. It looks like this, uh, from director, uh, Kim Bora, Kim. Bo Bora yeah. Kim. Um, and it's her, uh, their first, uh, feature. It looks like I'm looking here on their a... profile IMDb. There was a Korean actress um, called uh, Bo Rat Kim, so I kept getting confused in my write-up, like uh, trying to find information <laughs> on them. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad they made this debut, and I expect even more from them. Great, uh, more uh, bigger boom of South Korean cinema we're seeing. It's an exciting get to. And uh, uh, is it streaming somewhere, or is this just a press release that you got? Um, I believe. Either it is, or soon it will be on virtual cinema. So uh, I'm, it's likely already there. Right. Uh, another person you've never heard of. Uh, have you heard of John Stewart? No. Um, he used to host a, a small news show on on Comedy Central, believe it or not. So uh, no wonder you probably haven't heard of it. Who looks for news there? Um, yeah, uh, it, I'm looking now at the Daily Show. It's kind of a vague yeah. title could be any number of things yeah what does that probably mean? was just, just kind of a on every day <laughs> you know uh, i think i've got foggy memories it was like a blip on like uh the, the social you know uh times there uh i guess a small figure in you know the political media circuit i guess it i was, think they I don't just know, maybe you someone played i think they were played fox footage and just laughed at it um i thought that was the whole show yeah I mean, it sounds like modern media coverage as well, so... It does. I don't know, maybe he did have a big impact after all, if we're still doing the same thing. Yeah, um, he's come back now with the same uh, formula he had for the show, which is looking at the systems that elect politicians rather than the politicians themselves, which has always kind of been his thing. Uh, criticism toward Jon Stewart is usually leveled at, like, he's one-sided in an issue, but for me, he's always about the deeper political system there and the means for election. So he's always talking about super PACs and the money that goes into election. And Irresistible is um, kind of like a comedy that's skewering all of that and looking at the internal systems of how people are elected in the U.S. and why they're bad. Well, uh, yeah, and all, all joking aside, I think uh, Jon Stewart really can't be uh, understated as a major component of pushing uh you know political discussion for at least uh i think the more recent generations uh you know the daily yeah. show really did kick off a lot of those satirical news shows you know and followed by uh he helped launch colbert and john oliver's career and such you know and in you know in lots of ways yeah. he, he yeah he really revived how satire can be used to highlight the the major faults in not only our political system but it, particularly in the media aspect of it that too uh he does a bit more skewering of the media of course um uh, there's there's like the montage of cnn with uh 30 different talking heads all talking at once on the screen um uh over anchored and uh overexposed he looks at uh fox of course and he just peels away the the layers of bullshit that are already there but uh 
Uh, it has a surprising twist at the end. So Steve Carell's character goes into a, a small town and tries to... It feels like he's just going to manipulate the system and it will manipulate him. But uh, some interesting things happen there. Maybe worth a watch. I thought it was funny. That's good. And it's. I'm just happy to see him back in, in any capacity. You know, recently he made a huge push uh, to get more rights for the... Uh, 9-11 first responders and their health care, which has been criminally uh, overlooked for, you know... Yeah, successfully, what, too. Yeah, and he su- successfully finally got them uh, the, much of the attention and help they needed, uh, even after almost two decades of, you know, suffering, a lot of whom, you know, are, are never going to fully recover from this. So not yeah. only is he making work back in, a, you know... Our, our social relevancy in media again, but also he's doing real a- actual activism as well. And, you know, he's really an important figure to continue to look to. If you do watch it, stay for the after credits. Cause there's an interesting interview that kind of validates the whole thing. Um, uh, spoilers, but Stuart's asking a guy if all this could really happen in the system. And uh, I don't want to give away the ending or why he says that, but uh, it's an interesting interview that validates I'm- what he made. I'm betting the answer, as as we've seen from many other cases, uh, you know, is is going to be yes, yes, it can. Of <laughs> it, that, that was this thing with uh, a, any political satire. You see, the answer is usually this. This may seem cartoonish and ridiculous, but it's actually very real. And not only that, it is happening right now. I think we mentioned that, in, you know, our our network podcast in particular, and how it wasn't the... so much. It wasn't so much a prescient film as it was commenting on the very real movements that were happening at the time. It's a hard still time for it, because if it came five months ago, I think it would have had a large impact and people would be kind of sizing it up as a political film of the moment. Uh, right now, it feels nothing like our post-pandemic and uh, current Black Lives Matter, um, what's going on in the news. Yeah, uh, I guess the most... Issues are bigger recent- than this. The most recent thing I can kind of equate it to is I, I got to ask, how does it feel versus something like Vice uh, from, yeah. what was that, la- last year? <laughs> yeah, it feels is like last... he saw this... the big short in Vice and made a new movie. Mm-hmm. Those uh, are the best I, I can I wouldn't... think of. I think, I, I think Vice is better. It just has better performances. But uh, this is good. It's, it's funny. It feels a little outdated. But uh, Jon Stewart also has been out of the conversation a while. And Steve Carell's outdated, so, you know, it's a thing. A, a little, uh, sadly, but I don't know, maybe we'll see a bigger boom. I hope something, you know, instigates more uh, political conversation in our in our media, uh, because... I can't you know, imagine. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a constant, you know, cycle. The, you know, the art that we make informs, you know, the world, the world informs the art, and so on and so on. So of course. I, I want to see um, that cycle continue to work. I'm guessing dozens of movies with court- with quarantine plus social unrest. I think we're getting a treasure trove of movies in three years. So we'll see. Hopefully. I mean, if we get movies back at all, we'll see. <laughs> Everything seen... keeps getting pushed back. Pushed back. <laughs> we should talk about it now. We're, we're back to Westerns. Last time, last month, we talked about Landmark, uh, Italian Western, Fistful of Dollars. We continue the series now with the follow-up from Leone, A Few Dollars More. Which, I think we both agree, is a market improvement in basically every way. I believe so. I don't think there's anything that A Fistful does that I'd prefer over anything this movie does. Um, we were talking about that he had like a, a lineage that just went straight up, movie after movie. 
I think you can mark clear technical proficiencies that get better every time. Um, and uh, the only thing that uh, maybe not better is probably the naming structure. Do you know why it's named for a few dollars more? Uh, I, I looked a little bit. It seems like it's just kind of a middle finger to his previous producer, if I'm right. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he didn't even want to make the movie, and so they uh, kind of manipulated him into it. And to get the money for the last contract, uh, he had to do it. So for a few dollars more, just to F you to his producers. Mm-hmm. But Fistful of uh, Dollars may be the greatest Western title, so that's hard to beat. Maybe. Uh, I don't know how much it has to do with the film, but, you know, it's it's catchy. But but generally, I think the films speak better for themselves. Uh, you know, the titles often seem a little disconnected from from the material, and particularly as you stated in this case, it's it's not really a sequel in in any way. <laughs> it's a spiritual sequel at best. And I wonder if that was the Sanjuro thing, if he was still following Kurosawa's blueprint on how to do sequels, or if that was just also his fuck you because he didn't want to make a sequel. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm guessing it kind of is because uh I mean Clint Eastwood looks exactly the same it's the exact same outfit. I think there are some changes to the attire for the next entry, but but generally mm-hmm. this is this is basically the same exact character. And and I also read that there was a lawsuit uh involvement with the the right the terms of the character of of Eastwood and the the Italian courts favored Leone in saying that he's basically just pulling from western mythology and you know it's not at all indicated to be the same exact character uh leone ends up in a few lawsuits over his career uh, <laughs> kind of contentious guy and the way he approached things was a uh, well he didn't really look at things especially this movie you can see it, it's not anything like how movies were made during the 60s in that there's a rape scene and uh, a lot of coarse language and realistic violence and a lot of stuff that we weren't getting to till the 70s so uh, as kind of like a, a a call out to what's about to come uh, for a few dollars more, it it feels really loud. There was uh, there was kind of I mean at least in terms of uh, compared to American cinema, certainly there was there was inklings of that uh, in 1965. The uh, the censorship system was still in place, though it was crumbling and would be gone in two years' time. And a lot of strides were made already to tackle some of those things. So ideas and, and concepts like rape and profanity and abortion and uh, infidelity and all sorts of big no-nos uh, that previously couldn't be discussed were, were up for grabs because uh, of a lot of reasons in the system. But but still, generally, it was never as uh, you know in-your-face and as uh, explicit as it is in these Italian films, for sure. Um. I've always felt that this is an extremely Italian film. For me, it might be the most Italian Western. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that, but I think I kind of agree. I'd like to hear, though, your your reasonings for that. Well, for me, it's just that... um, How would I approach it? I'd say that it's (laughs) the most masculine and grizzled and violent... (laughs) It kind of puts in place what these themes are going to be. Like, uh, people are mean and morally complex just for the sake of entertainment. In a way, it's pure fluff of what Hollywood movies always were, but distilled down to the situations and moments. Um, I I feel like it's a film full of moments, and there's no real plotting. Um, in, in some sense, there's a lot of big moments that we're going to get to, but uh, I feel like it's loose, and it's fluffy, and it's a popcorn movie. But it's the most of that, and I think it goes the furthest that Italian Western does 
to kind of embolden those stereotypes. Whereas uh, I think the next film gets a little nicer, even though I think it's a lot better film overall. It's it's definitely very style over substance. Um, not always in the negative sense, but I think uh, indisputably so. Uh, as, as far as like plot and uh, structure, it's, it's it doesn't have as much of that investment in there. It definitely is going more for a, a vibe and a feeling. Uh, and I think a lot of the kind of more atmospheric qualities of Italian films, I agree with you in, in that aspect. And it is also a lot more uh, threatening, you know, uh, in, in those aspects. And, and yeah, I, I would say in some ways it's uh, like it's, it's follow up. The good, the bad and the ugly is tamer in, in some aspects, yeah. but also not. Um, I don't know, like kind of hard to point your finger at exactly what there. I don't think there's any, there's not anything near as gruesome or implicit in the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, but it, it's also just, I think because of plot choices as well, because they make it more about a gold hunt in that film. And it's less about, it's not a revenge story really. Whereas this one is very explicitly that, and it involves that there is that, misogynistic overtone as well with the regards there for is. the yeah which is inherent to the the genre of spaghetti westerns in some ways uh you know there was a bit of that even back in fistful and it's not you know it's it's exploitative it's it's like that time where we're, we're birthing the exploitation genre the low budget appeal and stuff so yeah i mean i think that's just an undeniable aspect of it yeah, I think that's just part and parcel with what Italian movies were at that time. Like, this is a generation that birthed, like, Giallo and Italian yeah. Westerns. There was for something these, in the these particular, them... These particular Italian films, like, there were Italian art films yeah. at the same time that were not like this in any regard. I mean, like, we, we, we had different Fellini wasn't making... No, no. Yeah, Fellini wasn't <laughs> making that. And, I mean, there was, like, the whole neorealism movement, of course, which isn't this. But right. uh, there was an Italian attitude at the time towards cinema that uh, there was a kind of superiority complex there where they were going to make things that other cultures made and do them more gritty and realistic and try to change the course of genre, which they did, because uh, we kind of stopped making noir and westerns afterwards. So fuck them, yeah. but also thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Italian westerns really, and particularly these these last two films, really redefined what they were. Uh, and I think a great example of that is seeing where people like Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef were coming from. Van Cleef in particular was coming off of the heels of two major uh, American westerns at this time. He had just done small parts in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and How the West Was Won mm -hmm. three years earlier, and then he came over to Ita Italy to do this and learned that for the first time in his career, he was having a big leading part. Uh, you know, his, his whole career otherwise, he was playing brooding, you know, bad guys, kind of in the background in particular. His first film yeah. role is it's one of the uh, is a silent uh bad guy kind of hanging around the background of high noon which which i right. love I, I love him in that movie even though he doesn't do anything he's just he's one of the three yeah. three henchmen and he's actually he's the first thing you see in the film there's a really great close-up of him and it's just it's got that that perfect he's got that perfect snake-like face and he really encaps yeah. encapsulates that like kind of demonic spirit you feel with the the henchman and he doesn't say a word throughout the film but he's wonderful but it really like just, it's a oh go ahead <laughs> he's always looked to me like a man who's been like lost in the wild west for a hundred years like no matter how old he is at this point he looks like he's lived out an entire life of you know hard skin uh banditry and uh like he like he's faced some moral complexity and questions in his life 
that make him feel mm. so much bigger than than a character. And and this film really gave him the first chance to really put like a true character into those caricatures. I I think like and he really imbued him with something special because Mortimer is is probably the best thing he ever got in his career. It certainly revived and jump started his his roles from there on out and gave him a purpose. And he was able to in you know uh, give the character. Uh, this this equal sense of of complexity of of moral corruption, but also inherent righteousness that defined spaghetti western heroes um, like like Clint Eastwood as well. And in some ways, I think he really just dominates and overshadows the entire film, even though his and Eastwood's character are technically on par and in equals. I just feel like he's so good here, and he shows up. He is, and uh, I, I think it might be his best. Uh... Uh, I, I think I have to agree, even though, like I said, I do like High Noon. I, I would not argue that it's yeah, a great a role part, for him in any way. It's it, right. it doesn't really emphasize it, but I just I think he really stands out in the film, and I think that's amazing to do on a first try without any dialogue. But this is definitely his best role, I think, from everything I've seen. It has the most meat to it. It, it uses him in the best way possible. His introduction in particular is fabulous and iconic, where, you know, he's... Uh, He's hunting down that guy, and he starts running off, and he he unfurls the bag on the side of his horse there, and you've got those different selections of guns, and he and he's able, it's and so it cool. shows, and it accentuates his his marksmanship and his penchant for accuracy, which is, uh, you know, uh, with rifles in particular, and that's what they give him that makes him more interesting as a as a gunfighter in this film. He's not he's not a revolver guy as much. Even his revolver has a, a you know a balancing stock on it there. So that he can right. more accurately aim. Um, I I think it just says so much about him once he unfurls the rifles, and I I feel like his character is well developed, and he is also morally ambiguous, which I think is the interesting thing about the Italian western that becomes defined in this one, is that uh, the morals are no longer clear cut in the West, <laughs> and in yeah. revisionist and Italian westerns from here, everything is complicated and cynical and two sided. They, they they have that outside perspective that allows them to kind of zoom in and take a look at the the actual moral field of of the American West at that time, whereas the the American films from before then wanted to paint them as wholesome and you know justifiable heroes without a flaw, really. Yeah. Uh, and it and really, uh, I, I think the Italian films highlight how any killer is morally dubious at best. And, you know, the Italian films, especially like the focus on bounty hunters, um, yeah. because, you know, it's like and you're killing the coolest thing. bad, <laughs> yeah, you're killing bad guys, but you do it with impunity and, and often in, uh, kind of, uh, inhuman manners and, you know, without any kind of, uh, remorse. And I think that's what highlights the, the complexity of their characters is like, well, the actions are good, but they're done in questionable ways and so that really highlights the you know the the fallacy of the west i think eastwood gets to do a lot in the next movie but i think he's never been cooler than here because he has so little to say i mean he is played straight and he's a little bit you know uh, hard-spoken but he's very quiet and uh it's always interesting to me that he always has a name we always say man with no name but he has a name in every movie right. so notice that well, name. Well, 
I'm trying to remember what his name in the first one is because I know there's there's this one he had one that they say a lot and then Blondie is of course well, the famous one. Joe. For... Joe is the Joe? first name. Monko. Monk, jo- Manko. Joe is Monko such a. Is no wonder I didn't remember Joe. That's such a boring name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, Joe. it's it's a. It's a very good character here, and he he does a really great job alongside uh, Lee Van Cleef. They have great chemistry and their their kind of uh, rivalry and one-upsmanship kind of relationship going back and forth really creates a good uh, dynamic. Though, though, like I said, I, I can't help but feel like Lee Van Cleef just kind of really shines through and takes center stage, even though Eastwood is, you know, admirable and capable within his own right here. But... Uh, having them at the center really makes it a much more satisfying and compelling film to watch over Fistful, for sure. Yeah, uh, I think everything attaches to a theme, or at least a general motif here, whereas Fistful, it's, well, it is imitative. I mean, I might like it, but it is derivative. It's it's undeniably... created and new. It's undeniably derivative, though uh, I I will say, kind of connecting with Fistful, like, the the one big mark I'll make against... uh, for a few dollars more that many people might not agree with me on is that it does carry with it one of the other main problems from Fistful and that's not drawing a compelling villain from the material which is uh, I think kind of evidenced by taking over the same actor Gian Maria Volante I believe that's how you're going to say his name I'm sure someone yeah. will yell at me about it but <laughs> he's not great I don't um, think he's great well there were all the stories that uh Sergio Leone, who we're also going to mispronunciate because we have to, uh, was unhappy with his performance and found him too theatrical. So he overshot his scenes to tire him out and uh, make sure that he wasn't being theatrical about it. But he still is. He's still overperforming compared to everyone else, and I don't, I don't I just, like that about it. That's I know. It, I, I just don't. I just, I, I can't buy. I don't believe him. I guess, and, yeah. and I don't, I don't find him intimidating. Even though the material for him is so much better here than it was in Fistful, and they have like an actual through line of of malevolence that that really should make me compelled to hate the guy. But I think part of the problem also just comes from the the fact that the the plot itself is thinly sketched at best, and so his his threat is so minimal and uh, you know unimpactful that I just I don't care that much whenever he's around and he doesn't have the same kind of charm or screen presence that either Eastwood or Lee Van Cleef do so whenever he's on screen I kind of just like nod off maybe a little bit or, or disengage I mean he up till the ending he doesn't have very many parts that really stand out to me as being important yeah. or necessary to the story so the the ending uh, is very I, well done and and I think that climax is good and we can circle back to that but but generally uh, he doesn't make an impact, I think, like most other Western villains do. And you can even see that in the course of the next film where Leaving Cleef makes a fantastic villain, even though I would argue that the part is generally a downgrade from more to more here because he has just so much less screen time and less to do. And he just becomes entirely malevolent. Like, there's nothing uh, complex about his character there. He's just evil. No, no um... Usually there's moral ambiguity in these, but then it becomes just evil the next time. But but then there's another shade there. So um, having the three shades kind of allows him to level off one way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess that's the thing that you lose there when... Because what works in 
American westerns more so is that you have the very obvious good versus bad dynamic, and so when you have but someone who is... If you want is, obviousness, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, if you well, don't that's care going... about moral complexity or characters at all, you know? Well, I mean, again, it depends on the film. I, I would argue still, and we, we've talked about the moral complexities of other American westerns before, but I'm just saying that, like, the dynamic is that you can get away with having a completely soulless bad guy in that one, in that setting, because you have the offset of the holistic good guy versus here, where if you have mixes of uh, anti-heroes versus just total evil, then the evil guy is a little cartoonish sometimes. No, I mean, in some case, the good guy is as bad as the evil guy in this, and uh, the good guy can still win. Um, I think what sells me the most on this one is has to be the Maricone score, which is possibly his best work in a western. I think we say that about almost every one of his scores, and it's which and it's is fair true. to say about everyone because every time you hear it, you're like, "Well, that's the best thing I've ever heard." Yeah, <laughs> it's it's true. Uh, I'll still attest that you know, going back to our once while time the West cast that that's that's my favorite of his personally. But I mean, all of the other the the, the three trilogy here one they're all very compelling, and I listen to all of them outside of the films as well. And this one in particular, of the three first films, you know, Fistful, Few Dollars More, and Good, Bad, and the Ugly, this one might be my favorite of the three, but we'll see what happens when I revisit Good, Bad, and the Ugly. I think I might just be saying that out of overexposure culturally to the Good, <laughs> well, Bad, and the Ugly. I think they all right. kind of fit, like, in the context of the film, too, because Leona uses the film, or the score to lead the film, so uh, Maricone, uh recorded all of it first and they went in and uh, recorded the scenes around his music so um. surprising i'd say surprisingly this one's less leading than uh the other two films like there's i think less score in this one than there is and i never Uh, felt and i think that's a good thing because in in other like say with fistful of dollars where i felt like the score was dictating and directing the film and sometimes overcompensating uh this one definitely it felt it felt a little more dialed back and it allowed the film itself to use the score rather than the score use the film. Uh, and I, think and I he's liked definitely, that. I feel like he's definitely shooting for the score, though. I mean, I feel like he's composing his shots based on what the sound is. Right, uh, but there are scenes that uh, play with no score at times uh, yeah. or minimal score, which you don't see as much in the other two films. Uh, and, and I think There's... that shows... Uh, a, a little bit more understanding that you, you don't have to rely on the music to accentuate everything. And again, you see a, a marked visual improvement in Leone's style here uh, overall. I think that's the, the largest leap in uh, progress for him as a director here. Yeah, uh, I mean, the cinematography is minimalistic, but everything's framed right this time. Um, it all makes sense where it's put in the frame, and uh, Leone gets to flex a little bit more what he knows about how to frame a shot. More importantly, no more exaggerated uses of wide-angle lenses that distort the frame. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that was one of my that. chief but complaints. Also, that was one of my chief you complaints also might last have time. A more functional and, uh, version this time. Uh, the DVD is not that I watched this time is not better necessarily. I still have to like zoom in because it's formatted for old, you know, like square CRT TVs, but. Uh, again, I, I had no issues this time with the visual direction of the film. In fact, there were many no. moments that I thought were ex- extremely well done. 
Uh, lots of great uses of his signature close-ups and such. Uh, there's that great, again, that sequence in the beginning I particularly love that introduces Lee Van Cleef's character and using, you know, really wide shots uh, and, and composing the frame with small figures in the background and such. There's another scene somewhere in the middle where they have people counting and you have these guys almost superimposed into the foreground counting people going by in the backgrounds and such. Just very, uh, a lot more artfully considered shots throughout the film. And again, he's not relying on just one single tool that ends up messing with the, the visual cohesion of things. Yeah, I think the counting segments are some of the best in it. And there is the good motif of time. Um, doesn't really go overboard with it, but uh, it tries to hook, hook onto something there. We were both a little bit confused yeah. about the watch, though. Yeah, that, again, that's one of the more disappointing aspect of it is that the the narrative of the film is is threadbare and the uh you know he he weaves in the flashbacks that kind of accentuate the importance of the watch the watch is the big thematic aspect of it there's a the really great haunting light motif to go with it that uh morricone infuses in and then we get like the revelation at the end but uh some of the plot doesn't all necessarily come together It's, it's a lot of explaining in a very short amount of time at the at the very end that's supposed to inform and create the dramatic aspect of the revenge plot but it all feels kind of just told at the very end as opposed to created along the same way i I expressed to you that this idea of there being a family related revenge plot uh is is another thing that leone did later with once uh once upon a time in the west but it's much better executed it feels there with charles bronson's character and when we get the flashback reveal it it really like plays into the emotional aspect of it. It shows you the the tragedy and the uh, malicious nature of the event, and so it it really does inform why this revenge is so necessary and so cathartic. Yeah, um, it it all works for me in some sense. Uh, I mean, this is one of the highest rated westerns of all time. Of course, it mostly works for me. Uh, yeah. Uh... Uh, and, and of course, going back with Fistful as well, you un- unquestionably love this film far more than I do. I enjoy this film greatly, but uh, I can also tell that I have more potentially nitpicky issues with it than other people do. Uh, some people love yeah. this one the most like, out of the three. Uh, I've, se- I've seen a I number of people. Which I think makes sense. Yeah, I, um, I can see I, why. I mean, unless you want like the three-hour epic of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I think is undeniable. Um uh, this one I also find pretty close to that structurally, though. So, I mean, it's in the top 200 MDiv movies for a reason. People love this movie. Yeah, but I mean, they also have like Joker in the top 20 for their list there. So, can you really this take to Joker? Come on. I'm just saying. I'm telling. I'm not saying that I'm comparing this film. I'm just saying that the IMDb top 250 list isn't an inherently trustworthy source for quality. Yeah. Um, it, it isn't, but I think that for Leone, I think it's well appreciated why they're in there and what they did for yeah. the Italian Western. S- sure, certainly. Um, I, it's not my favorite by, by any means. I do love Good, Bad, and the Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West a lot more. Uh, but I would, <clears throat> I'd put this with, uh, Duck You Sucker, certainly. I like those both. Uh, I like them both a lot. I like a lot of aspects of this. I yeah. wish it was better in some areas particularly in the the conflict and the villain of it i wish that were punched up a little bit more and more compelling but what i see in for a few dollars more is just a vast improvement in all 
aspects for Leone's direction and individuality and uh, honing that style. And then I see how it serves as a stepping stone for even further improvements down the line. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty rapid growth from where he came from uh, before this. No, sir. With the bigger certainly. budget, he does a whole lot more uh, and continues to. Yeah, you made a you, you made a comment to me saying that you were trying to think if there's another film that in a sequence that makes as significant a growth in quality on all ends, and I don't and I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. This might be yeah. the most improvement a, a sequel or continuing or, or even a secondary film in a director's career has you know there's probably like it's just it's a it's a major jump in quality in all respects in writing direction i would say the score as well performances and i think it i think it kind of shows that it's not a sequel really you know i think that's the reason why it's it's able to accomplish so much more like it's not really a trilogy like a we're kind of putting this on it afterwards like a it's not even a man with no name. All three men have names. Uh, this is a function of producers later on. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of a sequel. It's 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 a spiritual sequel. It's a sequel yeah. in Leone's career as a director, I would say. And you see how it ups yeah. the ante in in significant ways. You go from the one uh, protagonist, the two, and then we get three. By the time we get to. Uh, there and then even once upon a time in the west you can throw that one in with a fourth protagonist and you can see that intentional growth in scale and ambition and technical expertise uh all the way through i think i think we really just want to apply a name to the eastwood leone maricone team up and it's so powerful uh, if you combine all three movies i feel like they're a powerhouse and they're important I, I, so uh, I, I would argue that the name we currently have for it the man with no name trilogy or whatever i don't think that's a great descriptor of it either <laughs> there's no, got to be a... I, I like the i prefer dollars trilogy if we're coming up with another name yeah and even then it's not a great one as we've said because well, the names are they're all about they're all about finding money essentially right like they're all about getting a bounty um i, I guess i don't know it's you guess it's... so i mean yeah, what, yeah why, it, why not it, well it's just it's a it's a weak threat uh thread Either way, like the dollars truly were really going off of it because the first two share that title, and then the good, the bad, and the ugly is just a total, you know, like different thing it's about there. Getting gold, right? I don't... Can we just call it like the Leone trilogy? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's... I, I, I'd just rather take them as individual parts that, that yeah. make a really strong whole put together. Yeah, it, it is hard not to talk about them in the context of the three, though, as can be seen by our discussion uh especially because it's just such a rapid improvement over the first film yeah i don't know if it if i would say it's my favorite trilogy but the second two parts are my favorite later half of any trilogy so there's that i I think that's fair i don't dispute Um, that i i feel pretty good about it i i there were moments where even i was bored but i've seen it a hundred times so i i've gotten yeah uh, it just doesn't hold my attention. I think as the other, uh, the the later film does for sure. But even that film, uh, it can feel a bit bloated at times. I don't know. We got we got to discuss as well which cut of the good, the bad, and the ugly we watch when we get to that next month yeah. because, uh, you know, there's a couple versions that we have access to now. So, but regardless, uh, um, I I do feel good about this film, even though I I did spend time picking it apart and complaining about things. 
But I promise, well, I Calvin, feel... that the next I... one I'll be nicer to. <laughs> Um, I feel like it'd be hard not to be, but I, felt I know this has this been. Too, so. I know this has been. Mm-hmm. And I, I know this has been a bit of a torturous experience for you. You were reluctant to uh, go into this series with me because I was very down on Fistful for many reasons, and I was less emphatic about this one as you expected me to be. But I, I guarantee the next one I will be very excited to talk about and have lots of lots of great things to say. <laughs> I mean, you've already ruined two classics. Um, this one, a hard one to podcast to. I, there's genuinely, there's nothing that we should say about it that the audience doesn't know. If you don't know about this, you haven't paid attention to movies. Um, go start over. I hope that's insulting. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, that's, our, that's the best advice we can give for anyone right now. I mean, yeah, go watch movies anyway. Uh, movies are good, uh, especially this one, which we're, are we calling it the best Western we've covered? Uh, no, no, definitely not calling it that. Not even close. <laughs> really? There, uh, I'm not even calling it the best spaghetti western. Oh, um, well, it's better than, um, what would you say? I'd say most of them. Of, like, the other westerns you talked about, or? Not better than what? It's not better than McCabe or Shane, I know that. Or the Searchers. Uh, did we do Searchers yet? Let me let me find what are the westerns we've talked about. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's better than Fistful of Dollars. I got that already. Ching. Uh, it's um, better than that. Um, it's better than Red River for sure. There's no question. No, it's no, than no, to no. I come on. I just uh, wrote about why Red River is great. Don't do that to me. Uh, look, look. Uh, I'm gonna have a hard time picking between it and the good, the bad, and the weird. But both are like insignificant plot wise and such so uh that's yeah. that's the pedestal i'm putting it on there they're both stylish um, westerns that are that are fun with interesting characters and insignificant plots i think it's one of the better ones we've covered i think it's way much better than red sun um i, I mean i can see why red, red sun definitely just appeals to me and i'm glad i made you watch it i don't expect anyone to praise red sun like i do about equal with Treasure of Sierra Madre. I guess that's where I'm ending. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say it's we the didn't best. even talk about Treasure uh, of Sierra Madre. We covered a lot of great. We did a we did a podcast that didn't Just... get recorded. Whatever. <laughs> right? It's it's sad. We'll, we'll get back around to that one eventually. There's a couple of lost podcasts, and that's that's a more regrettable one. Well, I'm glad we got to it eventually because I I needed to get it out of my system anyway and get past your hatred for the Italians. So I'm glad we covered it. <laughs> It's not. It's not hatred. Don't hate uh, uh, the first. <laughs> if you remember the first time Western we talked about, I absolutely love, and I think that one is one of the, the best westerns of all time, certainly. But we did. You did want to get through these first two before we got to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So I'm glad we uh we did get to them. And again, I do like for a few dollars more. I do think it's good. I just have you know, it doesn't yeah. capture me quite as much as it does you or many others out there. But I'm ready to take all the hate mail for it. Uh, at least you love Great Silence. I, I'm okay with that. Uh, if we could leave it there, Corbucci is just as good at his best, so that's fine with me. That, that, that seems like a good way to end on it as possible. 